not aware of anything. Okay. No, do you know what? Not it, not it. You know, the UCAT's not informed me. Ben Sean's not informed me. No fuckers informed me. I ring Costa Coffee, having a coffee, you know, and, uh, you know, going through Instagram where this breaking news. This is when I've heard it, when I've seen it in Costa. That's all I know. You know, it's still ongoing. You know, I've spoke to Ben today, you know, you know, um, going mad with him, like, what's going on, Ben? Why, why, you know, what do you know anything about it? And he's saying, you know, he swore, swears to me that he's found out today as well. He's not heard nothing about it until today. You know, but, uh, you know, it baffles me that the boxing board's not been in touch. You can't, Ben, you know, it's just like, you know, I've just actually been at gym early this morning, an early session. I've just, I've been asleep, you know, I've switched my phone off from it. So I've still, I've still not, you know, this, this is definitely ongoing. You know, I need to know what's going off. Like, why, why aren't I being informed? This guy's been cheating in a fight. What happened over a year ago? And I've just heard about it today. Emir Khan, God help us, why? Of all the people, of all the people who had to pop for something, Emir Khan, why? Um, what an absolute mess this is. And the reason it's a mess is, it seems to be the antithesis of the Conor Ben situation. I'd almost argue that if I was Conor Ben, I'd want to be in Amir Khan's situation. And if I was in Amir Khan's situation, I might want to be in Conor Ben's situation in terms of how they position themselves. So here's what we know. Amir Khan's been given a two-year ban, which started on April 6th, 2022. That means in just over one year, Amir Khan will be free to, to, to do whatever he wants in a sporting context. Until then, he can do absolutely nothing. He cannot participate in a regulated and governed sport. He cannot coach. He cannot be around athletes. An athlete seen around him may also be subject to a ban. So he's in a tricky position, but then he's a retired boxer. Does he really care? Um, when you're suspended, nah, if, if ever he wanted to dope, this might be the time to do it because no one has a right to test him. So when I first heard this, I was like, good, throw the book at this guy, give him four years. That's what I, that's what I first thought. And then I rolled back and I, and I read the, I read the paperwork around this. And then I went back. I don't know if you guys remember. And, uh, there are more. There are more diligent people in, in Twitter land and podcast land than I am. I don't remember Vada saying Vada welcomes Amir Khan and Vada welcomes Kel Brook to the testing program for their upcoming fight. And Vada normally announces stuff on their website. I don't remember there being anything about that. So if someone can confirm whether Vada was involved, I'd be more than grateful. I don't believe they were. Although that would make it weird to say that Amir Khan was invoiced £8,000 by Vada for whatever it was. No idea. But that whole point comes back to something. Do you remember in early January, Amir Khan said, hold on, guys, I've been in camp for four weeks and no one's tested me. And Amir Khan was the guy who was pushing the testing agenda going, if I haven't been tested, Kel Brook hasn't been tested. We're four weeks into camp. We're not far off fighting. I think they're probably about six or seven weeks out from fighting. And they hadn't been tested. Now, from what I understand, according to the official document, Amir Khan was tested on January 20th and January 21st by USADA in Colorado, where he was training with Terence Crawford. He was also tested on the 12th and the 19th of February in the United Kingdom. 
So I imagine the 12th would have been the Saturday before and the 19th would have been fight night. Of those four tests, he passed three. The fourth one, he tested positive for Osterine. So that's February the 19th. He doesn't get notified that he's failed his test. Not, this is just the A sample, by the way, until April 6th. And then the obviously the anti-doping process kicks in with your B samples needing to be tested this, that, and the third. But let's just focus on that initial period. These two were engaged in one of the biggest fights in British boxing. It, it, it may, yes, it wasn't what it could have been at their peaks, but it's still a big fight regardless in Manchester. And there's no VADA testing. There's no record of it. Go and fight. There's no record of VADA being involved in you know, Amir Khan versus Kelbrook. Now, if you ask me honestly, do I think both those guys were juicing? In my honest opinion, I think they were both juicing. It's about who gets caught. These guys know that they're going to fight each other. That's why these negotiations are so protracted, because these guys are there going, well, let me, let me live my life and you know, take all the supplements and vitamins I need to. And then when the fight's signed, come off everything so I can sell through the testing process. And I'm still going to get the residual benefits because the stuff is doing what it needs to do already. Just get rid of the metabolites and just have the improved performance. So I imagine that's probably what happened in this case. The sad thing is it looks like they'd both done everything correctly apart from Amir Khan and when I saw that he'd, he'd pop for Osterine, my first instinct was, that's got to be a spike supplement. And here's why. Osterine's a terrible thing for a boxer to take in fight week. When you're trying to cut weight and all these, so you don't want things like that. Now, if he'd pop for a diuretic, I'd have understood that. If he'd pop for computer, I'd have understood that. But Osterine, what's Osterine's main use? It's just a bridge between steroid cycles. That's all, that's all Osterine is. It's, it's an eight-week opportunity for your body to reset all of its receptors before it then goes again on the juice. And it just stops you losing all the gains that you've made, and it keeps you able to perform at a reasonable level for long enough until the gear kicks in again. Why you would take that in fight week, and that's the argument here, right? Because if you passed your test on the 12th of Feb, UCAT test, and you failed the UCAT test on February 19th, that doesn't give you a lot of up and down time to take Osterine. And Osterine is not the sort of thing that you take as a one-off. It has zero benefit on a one-off basis. By the way, for all the people thinking they can be slick and take this stuff, it will mess up your blood work. It will mess up your endocrine profile. There are negative consequences to taking Osterine. So don't, don't see this as a recommendation or an endorsement of anything. Be very wise. Do your research. And if you're not getting paid to compete in anything, just don't bother. Please don't bother. So Osterine is just a messy, messy, messy drug to be taking for a sportsman because in fight week it gives you no appreciable benefit. I can understand people taking stuff like testosterone suspension, which is in and out of your system in under an hour, right? You might, you might take a hit of that before a fight, go into the bathroom, your mate injects you in the backside, bang, you're good to go, you're fired up, you feel bulletproof and you go. And by the time you come out of the fight, that stuff's gone. Yeah, I understand all of that. That would make sense to me. Um, cheek drops. 
stuff like that. All that stuff that, that works in very, very short, intense bursts makes perfect sense. Osterine doesn't. It's not even the best psalm out there. So when I first heard this, I was like, and I, and I tweeted this to Dave Caldwell. This is probably the most plausible case of spiked supplements I can think of. Amir Khan has far too much money, far too much experience. He's been in this game long enough that if he has a record of cheating, he knows what not to do. So I put the argument through that maybe it was a spike supplement, a pre-workout, um, an energy drink. It can always be that. And the reason I say that is I sort of know people in that world, in that sort of supplement world, and they'll tell you, your pre-workouts are normally spiked with something. That's why they work so well. So some of them are spiked with amphetamine to give you more energy, make you feel alert, make you feel a bit more bulletproof when you train. Some are spiked with, some are spiked with osterine because then you get the kind of anabolic effects as well. If you keep taking on a consistent basis, you get this anabolic effect and you feel that, wow, my pre-workout's making me feel incredible right now. So there's all sorts of reasons why people would deliberately spike their, their supplements with far stronger compounds. Because really, they're selling to the general population. And as a, as a member of the general population, you actually don't care if there's, you know, a small dose of amphetamine in your pre-workout. You don't care. You don't care if there's a bit of osterine blended into your creatine powder. That's only going to benefit you. But what it does is, in a battle where everyone's competing over who's got the best supplements, it can give you an edge. So the athletes are doping, and the supplement manufacturers are doping too, that they're doping their supplements. So this is just a permanent cycle of doping. But we live in a world of doping. Instagram filters are doping. You know, that, 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 that facade you put on Twitter, hiding behind the, the, the dog profile picture, that's also doping. All of this is doping. You're cheating the system to get an advantage. It's the world we live in, and that doesn't excuse Amir Khan because strict liability is strict liability, by the way. So I, I'm not going to deviate from that. I have some sympathy. You took a spiked supplement. Cool. But it's a spiked supplement nonetheless. You took it. So that's where I feel sorry for Amir Khan. Because I, I, do, I do see that being a plausible argument. I'm not saying it's the truth. I see that as being a plausible argument. Um, and I saw the hell he got on social media. And I think it's right. Like, we... We need this as boxing fans. I think the problem is it's sort of fake outrage, isn't it? People just want to kick him when he's down a bit. That, that, that's really what this is with Amir Khan. Kick him when he's down because it helps us all feel good about ourselves. You know, we, we do. We're doing it to Conor Ben. We, we did it to Dillian for a bit. We, we do it in general, don't we? We, get, we kick people when they're down. And it's like, okay, cool, I get it. But how many of you are really disgusted how many of you would walk away and not watch a Conor Ben fight until he clears his name? Not many. So the, the Twitter outrage feels pretty fake to me because I don't think it's principled enough. And it should be more principled and it should say, look, we're not going to support these drug cheats. And for now, Amir Khan is a drug cheat. I'm not saying it's intentional, but the rules are the rules. So to see Cal Brook jump out and start giving Amir Khan a kick, and I guess morally he's got the right to do it, but... This is a guy that not long ago was sniffing cocaine off a table and acting the fool. 
So where, where does he get off talking to people about clean living and doing the right thing? Where does he get off? And you know the way that he was storing that cocaine, there's nothing he wouldn't do. So if someone was asking me my honest opinion, I don't believe Kell Brook was clean in that fight. I don't believe Kell Brook's been clean for a long time. I believe he has access to the knowledge, expertise and intelligence to make sure that he does it the right way. They know what supplements to take. I'm sure they test everything to make sure that there's nothing in there. And it's the right thing to do. They're professionals, a professional outfit. But let's just sort of... So let's work out the story. What is the Amir Khan story right now? So the Amir Khan story is he goes and trains up in Colorado with Terence Crawford, Bomac, and all that team. Fine. He gets tested by USADA because UK had asked. They said, look, he's out there. Can you just test him? Because we don't know if he's trying to run away. So USADA tests him twice. Comes back negative. Lovely. Then he comes back to the UK. And he gets tested on the 12th and the 19th. First test, sweet. He's clear. Second test, he's not. So he then gets notified on the 6th, and then he has to make his arrangements. It's not till July they say, mate, you've got a case to answer. So when people say, why do these things take so long? Just look at that timeline. You failed in February. Then it's, what, six weeks until they've notified you. Then you've got to get your B sample tested. Once that comes back positive, whenever that's done, now there's a whole process you've got to go through. You go, right, now there's a case to answer. Go and get your lawyers. Because UCAD did. They lawyered up. They got, which, which firm was it? Bird and Bird? Whew. So that should be a worry to Conor Ben because if UCAD have Bird and Bird on retainer, they're one of the better law firms in the world of sport. Don't, don't buy into all of these guys you see on Twitter telling you that they're good sports lawyers. Bird and Bird, monsters. Absolute monsters. Yeah, you, what, I think in the trade they just call them two birds. And then Amir Khan sort of lawyered up with Blackstone Chambers. Which, Blackstone Chambers are essentially the, the Real Madrid of sports law. And I remember, because I did my assessed mini pupillage at Blackstone Chambers years ago. God, is that 20 years ago? And it used to be run by a guy called Michael Beloff, QC at the time, but probably KC. Now, Michael Beloff was also president of Trinity College, Oxford, and was an amazing sounding board for me throughout my law degree. Like, really good man. He is famous. He's the guy. I don't know if you guys remember. You Tottenham fans will remember this. When the FA threw the book at Tottenham and banned them from the FA Cup, took points off them, basically tried to, basically tried to crush Tottenham. Michael Bellov was the guy that got everything overturned. So if you ever see the video clips of that, you'll see him. He's the guy with the big beard and he comes out looking all smug. That's Michael Bellov, QC. Intellectual monster, really, really smart man. So he's built a, a thriving practice of some of the best sports barristers in this country, if not all of them. So everyone's lawyered up well here. The, the, how much are you looking at an hour for one of those Blackstone barristers? You might be looking at a grand an hour. 600 quid or a grand an hour, depending on who you get. That's crazy, isn't it? 600 quid to a grand an hour you're, you're lawyering up for. You kind of lawyering up with Bird and Bird for probably about three, 350 an hour for their solicitors. So they, this is why guys like Liam Cameron don't do appeals. Because you've got to really, really lawyer up and make sure that you've got that firepower. So in July, Khan gets told you've got a case to answer. Time to lawyer up, get your act together. August, the board then say, right, we're going to go for arbitration on this. And then it goes to the National Anti-Doping Panel. And I think that was held 
in well I know Khan had to make submissions in September October time and then that kind of ran through you look at the arguments and they do it in person I don't think it was till like early this year where the final bits were done and it was all kind of wrapped up and so we looked at, so what were the key questions is so there's no debate that the Austrian was in Khan's system he doesn't dispute that he says he doesn't ingest it intentionally and they go back and forth between their respective scientists. And so the key argument in Amir Khan's one is, if I was clean on February 12th, how much could I have possibly ingested to have popped for that small amount by the time it was February 19th? That was really the, the core question, how much? And so they did their, their various forms of analysis, and they, they looked at traditional doping protocols for Osterine and it's like do you take 10 milligrams or 25 milligrams a day and so from a half-life perspective what would that mean if you were clean when the test was administered till fight night and the truth is they came at a number like you'd be taking three milligrams even if yeah three milligrams as a one-off dose not three milligrams a day for that final week three milligrams as a one-off dose Osterine is not administered as a one-off dose as I said before it doesn't work that way and so you couldn't show a pattern of consistent usage. The numbers just didn't back that up. And so it pointed to potential contamination. That's the only... So, so the contamination is the thing that requires the least assumptions. As I've said earlier, spiking these things isn't hard. right? There's the supplement arms race to make your thing more potent. But there's also the, the manufacturing challenges. So Osterine is not for human consumption. Osterine is essentially something that one of the big pharmaceutical companies thought would be good. So I think Osterine was developed to, to deal with osteoporosis, and that might be why it's called Osterine, I don't know. But essentially, it was designed to deal with osteoporosis and to stop sort of muscle and bone wasting in people as they got older. For various reasons, people were like, ah, I don't think this is good for humans. It's not probably not potent enough. And so it just ends up being a research chemical. People then get that, start playing around with the molecules to try and make it more potent, to try and target the muscle a bit more. But essentially, no pharmaceutical company makes Osterine. So where's it made? It's made in like industrial units. In some cases, someone's garage. Like that's not unusual for, for these things to be made in someone's garage. Now, what, why is that an issue? You know? Wherever Pfizer or AstraZeneca have their manufacturing facility, it has to be certified to a certain level, whether it's ISO 9000, ISO 27000, whatever. It has to be certified to a certain level of quality. And so let's take um, the stuff that Conor Ben popped for, clomiphene. When they make clomiphene, nothing else can be made in the same facility because you can't risk contamination. There's a, that's a real danger, and the lawsuits will be incredible. But in your backyard labs, your underground labs, your industrial units, somewhere deep as dark as Wolverhampton, these factories are making pre-workout on one side of the building. They're making testosterone on the other side of the building. And maybe they're trying to make growth hormone or IGF-LR3 on the back here. And there's some osterine and some sounds popping off over here. So what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, ventilation is crap. These guys are running around in hazmat suits and masks, whatever it is they wear. But the ventilation is piss poor. It's not world-class ventilation, and it definitely hasn't been certified as a manufacturing facility. So stuff's going to float around. 
you're going to use the same the same vat the same bath to make osterine as you did to make the pre-workout so you don't clean these things out perfectly most stuff that people take is probably contaminated if they could be bothered to test it it's probably contaminated with something just for that reason they don't have pharmaceutical grade manufacturing facilities so you take that risk it's not unusual so i'll give you an example and i do know this for absolute certain there were women who were taking anova and they thought they were getting i can't remember 10 milligram tablets of anova but there was no anova and it. it was just spiked with testosterone and these women couldn't understand why they were masculinizing so fast on anova like seven weeks i mean a lot of women felt the effects Gains were through the roof, so they're like, yes, this is really potent, but I'm feeling a lot of side effects because it was just dosed with testosterone. Oxandrolone, which is what Anovar is, is an incredibly expensive compound. It's expensive to make, that's why it still retails really high. So you can get 20 weeks worth of TTM, testosterone, trend, and masteron for the cost of seven weeks of Anovar on a course-by-course basis. So no one wants to spend money making anovar, so they just spike it with test, with a little, maybe even a little bit of trend in there, just so when you go to the gym, you're like, wow, this is amazing, and you'll buy it again. And before you know it, you've masculinized it, like, I don't know how the hell that's happened. So that whole backyard supplement world that people love to participate in, you take your health in your own hands, so just be very careful what you're doing. And I imagine that's what's happened with Khan. Someone's given him a pre-workout, God knows where, man. It might just be called, don't know, man, energy boost, jolly juice. I don't know. Something like that. And he's taken it. And he's gone, oh, need to get my energy up before this fight. And he's just drunk that. And it's come up. Probably did nothing for him in the fight and it's come up. But that's no excuse. And that's not me saying he's innocent. I'm just saying, what a dumb way to get caught. But I don't think Amir Khan's a cheat. Nothing about him up until that point would have suggested that he cheated. And I, I don't think he was protesting too loudly when he said there was no testing. I think Amir Khan kind of knew he was on the downslope and he just said, I'll just try my best. So I feel for him. But I do, I do love the fact that they, they did a really rigorous analysis of, okay, if we run through a scenario of he was taking it before the 12th, what would he have to have taken and why would it have been missed? If he was taking it afterwards, what would have happened? So all these scenarios, because... How do you explain this? When you're defending yourself against anti-doping, there's always an assumption that, well, if you just show us the supplement, we can test it or we can go and buy one and test it. And people assume that's the only way you can defend yourself. But actually, in the WADA rules in 2015, I know they've been updated in 2021... It's not so much that. It's, they've come to the conclusion that defense is more of an art. So if you can string together logical and probable causes or sequences of events that may give rise to an inadvertent ingestion, then they have to give credence to that too. And I think that's kind of where Khan ends up. And that's why he got the two-year ban and not the four-year ban he should have got. Now, why is this terrible for Conor Ben? I'll tell you why it's terrible for Conor Ben. Number one... If even 10% of the people commenting on Twitter go and read this, they will be so well prepared for when Conor Ben has to face up to this that he won't be able to spin anything. You know, this is what Simon Jordan should be reading. Simon Jordan should be delving elbow deep into, into this report and this finding. 
Because once you read this, and you can find it online, but once you read it, you'll understand that it's a pretty rigorous process. Like These are pretty heavy-hitting guys who sit around the table. So just to compete with that, man, it's going to be very expensive for Conor Ben. But what it also shows is there's a lot of scenario analysis required. So for Conor Ben to explain why he failed two tests, is going to be a problem because what they can do is they can calculate the the clearance time of clomiphene they can calculate the half-life so they can they can go okay let's just assume it left you after the second test and they can work backwards and go so at a certain point this thing was through the roof why was it through the roof connor why would you have clomiphene in you you're saying it's lab contamination it, it feels like it probably isn't lab contamination because the amounts in there are not consistent with lab contamination. If it was in a backyard la- testing lab, I'd 100% understand that. But not in a world-class testing lab, it's not. You don't get those sorts of errors. So you have to ask Conor Ben this question. Why would you have clomiphene without a prescription? Now, if you got a prescription, you'd have a therapeutic use exemption. There wasn't one. So why would you self-medicate with clomiphene? You'd only do that if you were hiding something. And the real worry is if Conor Ben does have to face a UCAD panel, and I know people say the board don't recognize VADA, and that's cool. But I think UCAD may do, because if you remember the Adam Mackay scenario, he got caught with clomid on SAS Who Dares Wins. It just so happened he was still a licensed boxer. So UCAS said, hold on, there's a professional boxer on here who's been found with Clomid. Is it his Clomid? And the, the TV show had to confirm, yeah, that wasn't part of the show, that it was, in fact, his Clomid. And so they said, right, you got Clomid, but you don't have a therapeutic use exemption. Do you have a prescription for it? Uh, no, I just got told to take it. So, yeah, so they said, why have you got that? And why did you have the aromatase inhibitor with you? Now, why are you even taking those on SAS who dares wins? So he never failed the test. UCAD intervened because of what they saw on TV. So this idea that you can't, you can't have a panel, you can't convene a panel or have a hearing because it's VADA and not UCAD isn't true. You can do because UCAD can intervene in anything where they're like, hold on there's a real doping concern here. And if UK can intervene, that means the board have jurisdiction too. That's what Conor Ben's scared of. That's why he gave up the license, because his lawyers would have read the Adam Mackay situation and realized they can get us on this. So I don't expect Conor Ben to reapply for his license anytime soon. And in terms of having a meeting with the board, how can you have a meeting with the board when you're a civilian? What are you having a meeting about? The board has no jurisdiction until you have a license, so what are you having a meeting about? So when Hearn says, I want to get Conor Ben and Robert Smith in a room together, they can't. Robert Smith hasn't got jurisdiction, and Conor Ben is not under the guidance or protection of the board. So just to be be absolutely clear, the board and UCAT have every right to intervene over two failed VADA tests because they've shown that they will take jurisdiction where it looks like there's clear and obvious doping that needs to be investigated, even if their testing didn't catch it. They are UK anti-doping, not just UK drug testing.
So Conor Ben's in a real pickle right now. And he knows that he can't move. Because if you look at Conor Ben's case, right, it's a simple logical case. I'm surprised that the talk sport guys couldn't figure this out quicker. There are only two possible scenarios that Conor Ben can refer to. The lab contaminated his sample deliberately on four occasions. A sample, B sample, A sample 2, B sample 2. They would have had to do this on four occasions. Here's the thing. There'll be a chain of custody that tells you where each one of those samples was and who worked on it. And I'm confident when they reveal that audit, you'll find out the same people didn't touch it. And not only that, but they had no idea whose it was. So that's going to be a reach for him to establish. The second one was inadvertent ingestion. And people are saying he could have taken it in through eggs. Conor Ben himself has said, it wasn't in me. I didn't eat eggs. I didn't eat beef. I didn't. He said it himself. He did not ingest this. This is contamination. That's Conor Ben's argument. The WBC's argument is it is not contamination through lab or anything like that. It's most likely through eggs. One of them's wrong. If the WBC are wrong, then Conor Ben would have sued already. If Conor Ben's wrong, then he doesn't know his own physiology. Now, the problem is Eddie Hearn keeps telling you the WBC have cleared him. But it's like, well, yes, they've cleared him. But your fighter has spoken and said their decision is wrong. So how have they cleared him? And at least with Amir Khan, like he put his hands up and said, yeah, it was in me. I didn't take it deliberately. Here's the evidence. And it was pretty much done. And I wish more people were like that. Just take the ban and move on. And I hope Conor Ben learns from this, mate. Take the damn ban and move on. So now let's talk about everything else. So Ben Shalom comes out. And actually, in one of Ben Shalom's best performances in front of a camera since he linked up with Sky, credit where credit's due, he told us he didn't find out until it was you know, in, in the public domain. Same with Kel Brook. And what people don't understand is you can only have a duty to notify the board. However the board choose to then discuss it subsequent, that is up to them. But it's the board who determines who needs to be known. Now the thing is, Ben Shalom doesn't have a contract with UCAD. Kel Brook doesn't have a contract with UCAD. UCAD have no duty to notify Kel Brook about any test that he's not party to. So let's say, for example, Amir Khan had failed a test on February 12th. UCAT would have notified the board, and the board would have said we're suspending Amir Khan. And that would have been the first Kelbrook would have known about it. So the board would have had to ring the promoter and say, we've got to suspend him. So you're going to tell the boxer first you're suspended. Then you tell the promoter, the promoter tells the other fighter. But you don't have to... You don't have to do that. And because he, uh, the fight already happened after he failed, there was no need for that. The other question is, why people ask why it took so long. You can have other stuff to do, number one. Number two, you've got to be able to get Amir Khan in the country. So you've got to be able to get Amir Khan in the country with his lawyers, and they've got to have time to prepare and to understand everything, and they've got to get time to do their research and their investigations to work out how this could have happened, right? So there's so much work that needs to happen in these sorts of things. That's why they take a long time. 
And in a way, I'm kind of glad that it took a long time because at least Amir Khan was able to have due process without the court of public opinion hammering him. He's getting it now, which is deserved, but at least we saw the process work out. And if you've read the paperwork, you'll know. That felt like a very fair hearing. It didn't feel like there was an axe to grind. And so let me say this again. If Conor Ben's got an anti-doping hearing to address, the board aren't the problem. The board have no involvement in an anti-doping hearing. So Conor Ben should be asking to go through the UCAD process because the board don't get themselves involved in that. The board will simply take the, the outcome of that and apply it. That's all. But I didn't want to talk too much today, guys. Um, so there's just a quick summary on that. I make of it what you will. People say I'm being softer on Emir Khan than I am Conor Ben. No. Strict liability is strict liability. I think both of them should be banned. I'm just more sympathetic to Amir Khan's case because I've heard so many, so many stories, not, not from tested athletes, just people in general about spiked supplements and you know people having their blood work ruined, um, blood pressure changes, all that sort of stuff. So it's worth just saying as a PSA, man, be very careful out there. Just a quick one I want to touch on is um, I was reading today that... You know, heartbreak for Ellie Scottney. She doesn't get to fight for a world title on the Katie Taylor undercard. Um, they're saying Chantel Cameron's the reason behind it. Ah, I, I, I think it's simpler than that. I think it's this. If the McGuigans had problems with the people that used to be in boxing a year ago, I don't even know if Dublin's a safe place for them to be. Just saying that, I don't know if Dublin's a safe place for them to be. And maybe that's the conversation that's happened where it's like, I don't know if these guys want to be in Dublin. And therefore, maybe we should put Ellie Scottney on a show where we don't have to think about those concerns. I just have a feeling that it's not Chantal Cameron. I think someone has just said, maybe we don't want <clears throat> that person in this area considering the tensions that they've had over, well, clearly a number of their fighters, right? Taylor... Who was it? Taylor, Chantal Cameron, Carl Frampton, and a few others. So maybe that's what this is really about, that certain people can't go to Dublin. But don't quote me on that. But hopefully L gets to fight on a, on a big card like a Joshua White card. And Eddie, Eddie should look after her because she's been loyal. She could have gone to Sky a long time ago, but she's been loyal. Man. She's, she's Team Eddie. Like I don't, I don't just say that to, to curry favour. She is Team... She's Team Eddie and she's a good soldier for Matchroom. And I hope they appreciate that and I hope they show loyalty to her. And on that note, let me tap out and go and get some food. And thank you for, for listening as always. And I just understand it's always appreciated. You guys take care. Mm -hmm.